Hey friends and family, it's Tyler Reams, and this podcast is a space for conversation and to explore critical issues such as racism, privilege, and the political divides that keep us from seeing the humanity in one another. On this show, we'll hear stories and maybe experience some discomfort as new ideas are shared. This is welcomed and encouraged because learning and growing can sometimes hurt, but your story matters. And while I am left and white, I recognize that not everyone else is, and that's okay. My goal is to learn where people come from and find out why they see the world the way they do. I'm trying to like love for the like love the least of these, like provide for you know, like actually like organize out of love. The least of these has come up in almost every conversation I've had so far, every interview I've done so far. Someone has said like our call towards the least of these. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you said that. I am recording now, so yeah. let's let's do this. In Magnolia, is small town, um, and you pretty much either like party a lot or you get heavily involved in the church as a teenager. That sounds exactly the same as where I came from. Yeah. So I chose the getting involved in the church route, mm-hmm. um, and kind of had a little bit of a tumultuous um, uh, home life. And so the church was a really big point of safety for me. Mm -hmm. Um, It was where I developed a lot of um, great relationships with mentors and people um, in the community that were older than me. And it gave me a place to go to have, uh, you know, activities uh, with friends. And it became my whole uh, social structure um, Mm -hmm. in high school. And I made the transition to Dallas when I went to DBU, Dallas Baptist University. Um, And, you know, from my time at DBU until a few years ago, I was still involved in uh, churches. And in the past uh, four years after the 2016 election, I transitioned into uh, social organizing Mm -hmm. um, outside of the church. So... Have, have has that transition for you been a black and white or a blend? Like, are you doing both or have you moved elsewhere from church? So I actually convinced myself, uh, talked myself out of going to church in the middle of a Bible study one night. Mm-hmm. Um, I was with a group of people <laughs> and I was like, why in my adult schedule? So, you know, I was a young professional and as you grow a little bit older in life, you know, sometimes you have more responsibilities, less time to invest in socializing. And I realized I was devoting, um, one night a week to a community group Bible study. Mm -hmm. And I was devoting, um, Sunday morning to a worship service. Mm -hmm. So this was two chunks of time in my busy adult schedule where I was meeting with the same group of individuals and studying the same text Mm -hmm. with those people. And I, I really didn't see that we were applying it into our actual like physical worlds outside of, okay, maybe it changes how we engage with people at work or our family. But I really realized that this many churches were really operating as social clubs. (laughs) And from my perspective, um, it was a group for the people, the members in it to help support each other, to have a guiding principle and and morals that they rallied behind. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see a lot of the action work happening. I see. And it was important to me that, yes, we look to who Jesus is. We have a community and we support each other. And we're called to go out and to act in the community and to help better the world. Um, What does that look like for you, to better the world and to go out into the community? 
Uh, and the 2016 election really highlighted a lot of government structures and, ex, uh, I guess, just injustices in our our economic system that I wasn't aware of beforehand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, highlighting how our economic structure benefits the 1% and their wealth continues to mm-hmm. grow. Mm-hmm. And that we're in an economic situation where there's a disappearing middle class and a growing um, class of people who can't afford basic healthcare, um, that can't afford to have their child in daycare. Like, you know, it's either, it's an economy where you can either go to daycare, have your child in daycare, or you can Mm -hmm. work a job, but you can't afford to do both. Which is different than the kind of middle class of the, you know, fifties through sixties, kind of around that time. That's, it certainly disappeared, um, both with lower wages being paid on average by, majority of companies, not majority, a lot of companies are not paying living wages. Uh, and also what we're saying for everyone listening, um, there's a great deal of evidence to back this up. There are statistics that you can look at over time um, that kind of back up these claims. I would say Robert Reich, R-E-I-C-H, uh, is someone to look into for some of those perspectives and some of that data, if you're curious. Um, but yes, this is all backed up by the changes in American economics, I would say probably starting really in the 70s and 80s really badly mm-hmm. when that started to become more um, more of an obvious divide between the top and the bottom. Mm-hmm. Another um, economist that I really turn to is um, Robert Wolf. Or wait, mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, Richard, and, Richard Wolf. Richard Wolf, yeah. 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 Richard Wolf. Um, and he has a podcast called Economic Update with mm-hmm. Richard Wolf, and I recommend that mm-hmm. as well. But... Um, yeah, I guess I just, I saw like this, that especially my experience as a millennial um, mm-hmm. has definitely shaped my perspective that our generation can't afford the same things that our parents' generation could afford for the same amount of labor. Mm. Um, so it takes, you know, like our housing and rent costs have skyrocketed, mm-hmm. but our wages haven't, mm-hmm. um, you know, equally risen to match those Fortunately, yeah, healthcare and education as well being two big things that everyone needs mm-hmm. uh, have also risen in cost way outpacing um, just the average rise in income. Um, whenever I realized like those dynamics that existed in our um, economy, and I also started to educate myself on the civil rights movement mm-hmm. um, and the just a lot of different social movements that have happened in our history that I wasn't taught about in school, mm-hmm. I felt compelled to try to help build a better world where healthcare is more accessible, or at least mm-hmm. to advocate for healthcare being accessible, um, good paying jobs, um, mm-hmm. you know, similar to like the, the WPA, um, yeah. and other, you know, like jobs, green jobs for our, the, the future that we need to better the climate and right, right. continue as a civilization. Yeah. And so, so you found, you have found space to, organize and advocate around those things outside of outside of the church. Yeah, so I personally joined DSA, which is a Democratic Socialist of America. Mm-hmm. And through that organization, um, there are different working groups that we have. And I was involved in the racial justice working group mm-hmm. and also worked with our healthcare working group to uh, go around the city and collect signatures for mm-hmm. paid sick leave in Dallas. Which was successful. 
which was successful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and recently I think they're, they moved to try to take it away that, and that not implement about, it and things right. like that. Yeah. Um, but we did collect the signatures needed to, um, guarantee that if you, your employer has mm-hmm. to give you, um, an hour paid sick leave for X amount of hours that you work, um, for that employer. Yeah. Um, and so advocating for systems like that, access to healthcare. Um, we also went to city hall and advocated for the removal of the juvenile curfew ordinance in Dallas, which Mm -hmm. disproportionately stopped, um, Latinx kids, youth, and, Mm. um, fined them for being out past their curfew. Um, Mm. and, you know, we've done, we did a lot of work for organizing for Bernie's campaign recently. Mm Um, we, have worked with DART to, or not worked with DART, but we went to the DART board meetings to try to um, make sure they didn't privatize our public uh, mm-hmm. systems and mm-hmm. services. So doing work like that, that actually meets tangible needs of the community in Dallas mm-hmm. is something that um, has been important. Free flu shot clinics, brake light clinics, things like this. That's all part of the work. I love the brake light uh, clinic because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you hear stories about like, people being stopped for something minor like hey your brake light is out and that resulting in a ticket or a search of the vehicle or, or whatever it happens to be um when really that's a, an easily solvable problem and i would argue maybe someone hasn't replaced their brake light not out of laziness but maybe it's i don't have time with my multiple jobs to go take care of that or whatever it happens to be um so i think that's a really it's <coughs> a really good um service that y'all provided yeah and i think we're all about like tangible, actionable needs in our community while also being connected to organizers throughout the country so that we can get bigger systemic changes that need to take place while also mm-hmm. being very local at the same time. I'm going to ask a hard question. Why yes. couldn't these things have been done through the church if that was something that was important to you? So I actually, I, I would have loved to have seen churches that were really doing that work, mm-hmm. but Um, I didn't see a lot of churches that were doing that work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, recently I, uh, in the beginning of COVID, I went to get tested at a black church here in Oak Cliff Mm -hmm. and Friendship West Baptist Church, actually. And when I pulled up, they had a lot of members of their church out there in t-shirts that said healthcare ministry. Hmm. And I had actually gone on the wrong day originally. And when I showed up the day before, they were doing their food, uh, like local food project uh, ministry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that there are a lot of churches, uh, you know, with people of color that are doing this work and they're doing mm-hmm. it well because they have realized that that, that is the work that not white Jesus, Jesus sure. wasn't white. Sure. That is that is the work that their person of color, Jesus asks of them to do is to take care of each other, to take care of the tangible needs of the people your, around your them. Your community and the least of these. Exactly. Yeah. So I see that it's being done in those communities, but when I was involved in, in white church and the mm-hmm. churches around me, I did not see really robust, um, mm-hmm. you know, social programming to take care of people locally. And I can, I can identify with that to an extent, just thinking about growing up in the church that I grew up in and and of course still kind of being heavily involved in church today is something that's very important to me. But, um, I remember growing up, we had, um, 
in, in our Baptist church, it was called the chainsaw ministry, which sounds super scary. And I, I brought that up on a number of occasions about how, how, how scary that was to me. But it was like with all the storms in the South Louisiana, it was just a group of guys that would take their chainsaws out and go to people's houses and like start cutting up the trees for them that had yeah. fallen. And so it was stuff like that, that you were seeing action in the community. And of course, mission trips and things like that, where, where we're reaching out to the, to the larger world community around us in church. And I, I definitely did see that. And I'm sure you did too, but there's one particular paradox that confuses me to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the debate around what is pro-life. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? Um, well, I do, uh, before we address that, I do want to kind of like backtrack a little bit and mm-hmm. mention that I did see a lot of, um, work in the church to, to do like back to school programs where they would provide, um, some medical care or put together backpacks and some Mm -hmm. school supplies for kids going back to school or really immediate needs whenever there's like disaster relief and things like that. So I have seen a a big desire for the church to come together and to help each other, to help, you know, treat some of the symptoms in the community, but I don't see like the big kind of like a big push to treat systemic, um, problems in the church. I totally agree with you. So Um, I see them trying to apply band-aids to situations and and caring and wanting to help, but not having like the really difficult conversations Mm. to, to analyze, um, what are the bigger structures that are happening and how can we really, um, stop these problems? How can we, how can we prevent kids needing to be put up for adoption mm-hmm. instead of just only like like resolving it through what we can immediately, which is to adopt to help? Sure, right? sure. Um, but yeah, going back to the paradox that you asked about mm-hmm. with um, pro life, I know for sure um, so many so many people that I know really get caught up. So many Christians that I know are finding themselves at this intersection of wanting to align themselves towards policies and bigger systemic changes that typically get categorized like, Oh, that's a leftist idea. And they also feel torn that to vote right or to vote Republican means that you're pro life. Mm -hmm. Um, and they do get stuck on the issue of abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, and it makes sense. I actually had a really hard time dealing with this topic whenever I transitioned from working in the church and going into, um, more social work organizing. I agree. With you. I still struggle with it to this day. Um, yeah. Because, because as a as a Christian, I, I do think we're called we're called to value life. And so, growing up, and I mentioned this in previous episodes, but growing up in the church, I was I was I guess I don't know if anyone told me or if it just kind of felt that way, but being towards the left politically was bad, and that that was unchristian, and that God would not welcome that. And it wasn't like I wanted to reject. God or the church, it was, I felt like that God and the church would reject me if I began to, uh, change my, my spectrum of political beliefs. Um, and so, but I started to realize that like, well, pro-life must mean more than just being born, mm-hmm. which is important. And as, as a Christian male who leans to the left, I recognize that like my opinion on this probably is not as important as, as a woman's opinion, mm-hmm. but I do still struggle with that, that divide that to me, it seems like the left is adopting what I would say are more pro-life policies around mm-hmm. economic justice, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's higher wages, um, universal health care, child care, et cetera, et cetera, things mm-hmm. we'll get into. And then the right is, is more about like, well, babies must be born. And I think I agree with both. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I agree with both of those things, 
But then the paradox is like what happens after the child is born Mm -hmm. and where is, where is the Christian right and the political right when it comes to that? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that I, I struggle with still. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, there's a number of people that I know who I've had this conversation with who will say, I, I could agree with everything that the Democrat candidate says, Mm -hmm. but if they are not pro-life on the issue of abortion, I will not vote for them. And that's fine. That's totally okay if that's your like political deal breaker. It is for a lot of people, but I just found that very interesting. Yeah, that 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 that, that one that that one thing would outweigh all the other things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning of my like uh, reasoning and dealing with that um, topic for myself, I I really just broke it down to the fact that you will not stop people from having sex <laughs> period. Even if you do abstinence only sex education, that just isn't, it's not going to, it's gonna not going to work. Mm-hmm. The reality is people are going to have sex and you and I have worked in a school uh, yeah. and we have seen a lot of butt touching. So yes, <laughs> yeah, we, the youth is going to have sex. They are. Um, everyone is. And, mm-hmm. um, so we're not like, even if there's an, uh, the argument of like, if you don't want to get pregnant, don't have sex. Okay. Like people are still going to have sex. Yes. Um, People are still going to get pregnant, uh, have unwanted pregnancies, mm-hmm. and abortions are going to happen even if they're banned. Mm-hmm. Like historically, we've seen that the, you're not going to stop this dynamic from taking place. It's only going to happen in more unsafe ways. Mm-hmm. So I look at I looked at that and I thought, well, why do people like for some people having an abortion is not a difficult decision. One, it's not a difficult decision for every person. Right. right? But a lot of times, I mean, it is a, it is a pretty invasive procedure. And a lot of times a person, you know, it was an unwanted pregnancy, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not something that they necessarily always wanted to happen in the first place or be in that position. So what does it look like? Um, to provide like free access to birth control, um, and to, you know, actually teach people about their health and how to like have, you know, more to be more safe or have the access to mm-hmm. what they need to mm-hmm. have a better control in the situation. So um, you're looking at ways that, that we as, whether it's as political people or as the church can actively seek to prevent unwanted pregnancies to begin with. Yeah, like to to be in an empowered position where you understand your sexual health, you have access to, um, you know, what you need to to be empowered in your sexual health life. We already understand that you're not going to stop people from having sex. You're not like abortions are still going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But when people are citing the reasons that they're not having or not having the, the child, a big factor is that they can't afford to. So if you really want to like prevent this thing from happening, um, and if a lot of Christians, if this is one of their main issues, I think directing their focus to how can I help work for a society where someone knows they can afford to have their child in daycare in a safe environment and they can mm-hmm. afford to go to work. They don't have to make a choice of can, you know, I can afford to have a job or I can afford daycare because mm-hmm. daycare costs as much as most women are making in their jobs yeah. just for daycare. Yeah. And it's actually the cost of day of childcare has doubled in the last 10 years, which in, and incomes have not doubled. incomes have not. Yeah. Um, the cost of housing has exponentially risen. Yes. Um, you know, so it's really just a matter of like it to be pro life is to like be about 
organizing for the life that is here, the life that is coming to be here, mm-hmm. and creating a welcoming and stable environment for people to um, be able to bring life into the world if they choose to, if they want to. Yeah. Should we say what a few of those things are that we think would be good solutions? Yes. And that, again, uh, we can look at the numbers on on support for these different ideas that we're going to talk about. I will, I will say up front, um, having done a bit of research on this, there is more of a consensus than I realized around what people believe on abortion rights, universal health care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these policies that we're about to discuss, discuss actually do have popular support across political lines. The difference is when we look at whether or not these policies are supported by our elected leadership in Congress, um, specifically where you see more of a polarization between which side wants universal health care, for example, and which side does not. Mm-hmm. The consensus among the average people like you and me, regardless of political difference, is we would like better health care. We would like universal pre-K. We would like, um, it's actually more people than I thought were in favor of abortion rights. The divide comes not from the populace, but from our leadership. And so I think that's driving that narrative, too, of like, we're so divided on this issue when really a lot of us agree more than we think we do. And if we were to sit down and talk to someone who we think might have a different view on this issue than us, I think we'd probably end up determining that we probably share more. Yeah. Um, And I would, I would argue that, or point out that I think across political divides, there's also a consensus of understanding the corrupt nature of our political systems Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. lobbying um, systems and the privatization of, you know, Everything and, and what corruption comes about through privatization. Um, and it's, it's just interesting because a lot of people love socialist ideas when they have a fire and the fire department comes. <laughs> and they like social services yeah. like public education and fire departments and mm-hmm. these types of things. And we're just saying that we want to expand social services um, to better meet the majority needs of our community. Um, so should we say what a few of these things actually are that I agree with you? Yeah. What these things are that we, that we mean. Yes. And then we'll attack the popular argument of how do we pay for it? Yes. Okay. Um, so I think the biggest thing that has consensus across political lines, um, I think around 70% agree Mm -hmm. that our healthcare system, which is, one of the one of the only, if not the only, in the developed world that is run largely as a profit-based enterprise, um, which is not guaranteed for all citizens through as a, as a human right through taxpayer dollars. Um, every other developed nation in the world, you know, New Zealand, Germany, England, etc., 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 they have lower healthcare costs than us as Americans, uh, and that's in total as well as per person. Um, often better outcomes. Mm-hmm. healthcare outcomes than we do. Um, and their systems are largely run in a more centralized way through their government. Um, and yeah, a lot of not like, right. It's not tied to their employer. And right now you just have it. Yeah. Since we have like what? 50% of Americans are unemployed it's, right now. No, it's 40, 40 million people are out, have lost their job. A lot of 40 million people have lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. And with the job loss comes loss of healthcare. And so a if lot of other, if they had it to if begin with, off, if exactly. their job even offered it. Yeah. Um, whereas in other countries, it, you don't lose your healthcare because you're in between jobs right. or a pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. And there's also caps on how much it costs you. So, so 
um, in in most other countries, it's it's a, a tax that you pay, which is would be the same as us paying premiums, but often that amount is less uh, than if you were paying healthcare premiums like we do to Aetna or Cigna or Blue Cross or whoever. And if they do have a, a cost to pay at the doctor, then it's usually very very small, you know, five ten dollars. Um, I have a neighbor who lived in Canada for a number of years who got back surgery for forty dollars. And that's in Canada. That's not that's not far from here. Like it can be done. These places aren't suffering. These places aren't having to triage what patients they serve and what patients they don't. Like largely, these are very popular systems. Um, and they don't allow. A lot of countries don't allow for the same type of privatization of mm-hmm. um, drugs to happen. Where. Yeah. You know, you can actually afford the medicine that you're being prescribed. You don't skip taking your insulin because they don't allow, you know, singular companies to jack up the prices of their yeah. drugs in the same way that we do in the United States. And on top of that, we we often, or when I say we, I mean the government through our tax dollars often funds grants to develop new medicines and new research, which are then sold back to the public at a huge premium. Um, pharmaceutical costs is a very bipartisan issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and others have spoken out very convictingly mm-hmm. on the importance of kind of reining that in. Because um, we all live in a flesh body. Like, right. we're all going <laughs> to, like, at some point, your, your flesh sack is going to need to flesh be, sack. like, <laughs> is going to need to be sure. um, tended to. Sure. And, <laughs> you, you know, we, we're we going to all engage with the healthcare system in some way or another. And yeah. almost everyone we know who has been through, um, you know, the healthcare system has you know, had astronomical prices that they've been charged mm-hmm. for basic drugs mm-hmm. or procedures. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it impacts all of us, and it will at some point if it hasn't yet. The U.S. is the only developed country on the planet where you can go bankrupt for a medical emergency and probably even then not get the care that you need. Um, so I, there is political consensus that this is a big issue. Most people don't want the health insurance situation that we have. Many would say, I don't want this, but I also don't want the government to handle it, which is a different conversation. I think that's a big divider between left and right, and maybe that's a conversation for a different day. Um, I I hear that concern. Mm -hmm. How can we trust that a government that has rarely done the right thing Mm -hmm. can manage a system like this? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that other than it's got to be better than, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shields owning me. So you and I would argue that universal health care, for example, is a very pro-life policy. Mm-hmm. It's available to everyone. Uh, it is low cost, less than we're paying now. Um, it's not tied to your employer. So should you be facing a difficult situation such as we are in the world right now uh, or otherwise, mm-hmm. you're still protected. The health of your family and you is protected. Yeah. Um, I think that should be a non-negotiable. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I also think having universal health, uh, not health care, universal child care is very important. Mm-hmm. So having systems where we have a jobs program, especially in this time where we have so many Americans that are unemployed, mm-hmm. you know, looking to the uh, WPA and that was that 1930s? The it was the New Deal Workers mm-hmm. Progress Administration, um, you know, which was just loads upon loads of government jobs that got people back to work, got them paid. Uh, and that along with world war two helped to re-stimulate our economy and get us out of the great depression. Yeah. So I think there is, you know, this, this push for a new green deal or new, like, the green new the, deal, yeah. yeah, like mm-hmm. having these new deal types of concepts. So saying we can, 
pay to educate and train people and get them in good paying jobs that we support through our tax dollars Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, so that we can in turn have systems that are serving the needs of our like, you know, national communities. So, you know, we could educate, um, you know, childcare workers and have healthy, safe facilities where people can trust they can take Mm -hmm. their kids so that they can go and contribute their labor power in other ways in our economy. Mm -hmm. Um, because maybe taking care of children isn't the job that every woman wants to do. Um, and it is for some and it's an empowering thing, but Mm -hmm. I also have many friends of mine who are, you know, we're still in an economy where men are making more money than most women oftentimes. And for a lot of my, my, my friends who are married and have children, um, they have to depend on the, the husband or the man's income Mm -hmm. to pay their bills, which just economically, it put them in a position where the woman had to stay home with the child. Mm -hmm. And, but that's not necessarily what a lot of my stay at home mom friends Mm-hmm. love doing. They actually want to be engaged in their other, you know, in their career still, but they can't sure. afford to take their kids to daycare. Um, mm-hmm. and they don't feel confident. They can't afford the places that they wish they could take their kids to. And there aren't really many right. middle ground options. So expanding, um, universal healthcare is, is or just having universal healthcare is very important. And childcare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and one way. Oh, did I say healthcare yeah. again? Oh no. Yeah. Do you want to go back? And, no, it's fine. Okay. It's on the brain. And right. it's important. Um, <laughs> Universal pre-K uh, that's publicly funded is is something that it's not available in most states. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an example of, of the childcare argument that you made. Um, preschool being, you know, a arguably very important year for a child's development, getting them into that education system younger, having them learn to read and write and engage with their peers younger is has proven long-term benefits. Um, there have been studies locally and abroad um, that prove this. But yet, if you, in most places in America, if you can't afford preschool, mm-hmm. then you can't have it. So not only do you have, you know, parents who are able to provide that for their kids because they can pay for it, but you also have the reverse of that, which is low-income moms and dads who can't afford pre-K. Not only are they not able to have that those critical uh, years of learning for their kid, but they're not allowed to re-enter or not able to re-enter the workforce mm-hmm. and help to alleviate their poverty situation. Uh, so it's, it's almost like a, it's like getting hit double. It's a, it's an exhausting system. Mm-hmm. Um, one that you and I don't even know the half of because we are in a much more privileged position, mm-hmm. um, economically, but people this in this society, it is so hard for people to be able to own property or own yeah. a home. And, I think that there's a lot of work that could be done around uh, organizing for affordable rents and mm-hmm. organizing for better wages. Both of those things um, put people in a situation where they can be more stabilized to afford to have a family if they want one. Yeah, exactly. I would say that like even even as a privileged middle class person, I'm, Elizabeth and I still hesitate of like, is this the right time or can we do this? Or like, yeah, maybe we were good right now, mm-hmm. but what happens when you know, let's, God forbid, a child is born with a huge medical issue that ends up damaging us financially mm-hmm. for a generation. Yeah. Um, because, we know, because we know these things are generational. Yeah, and our generation, too, is really looking at um, the viability of the climate that we're leaving behind. Yeah. Um, the unsustainable, uh, ways that we handle waste and trash and exploiting the earth's natural resources, 
mm-hmm. is a real issue. Like we have so many issues that we need to handle for our tangible physical needs right now. Mm-hmm. But if we're really looking towards the future of like what kind of society um, and inhabitable planet are yeah. we going to be leaving behind for our kids? That's impacting a lot of millennials decisions to have kids or not. So mm-hmm. Tying it back to like um, my experience in the church mm-hmm. um, as well, I found in the church that there was this really, um, in my experience, I found there was a fixation on the fact that earth is not our home and that we are all, all going to go to heaven, this faraway place. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Jesus like, Lord, just come take us now. We're ready to go home and home is elsewhere instead yeah, of this yeah. idea of like heaven on earth too, of like, this is Jesus came to earth in that story. Mm-hmm. He tended to the physical needs of the people around him. He flipped over tables and said <laughs> like, whenever he found people were charging interest, right. And, right. Said, and condemned that <laughs> condemned a love of money. Money, um, mm-hmm. over the needs of people. Mm-hmm. And I just really think that it's important for us to consider like what, what is the reality of the tangible environment we find ourselves in yeah. right here yeah. instead of just these abstract ideas about where we're going and mm-hmm. what, what this all means. It's like, so we're called to steward the earth and steward God's creation and to treat our bodies as temples and all these different things that I think that across the board, we don't live out, but mm-hmm. I found it particularly interesting that, that many conservatives and conservatives are often Christian and vice versa. Don't believe in the science of, of climate change. Um, and personally I had to contend with this growing up as well. of like, thinking that science and religion had to be opposite of one another when really I've come to believe that they, they, they answer different questions. And to quote, to quote my pastor, Arthur Jones is it's religion asks why and science asks how mm-hmm. the two don't have to disprove one another. And in fact, they don't, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me to believe that the earth is billions of years old and that climate change is real doesn't shake my faith in God and in Jesus and in the story of creation. Yeah, um, totally. And I think we, we have this like nostalgia for even with the movement of like make America great again, mm-hmm. when we're thinking about like great America, mm-hmm. I think great America was building national parks yeah. and, yeah. um, and great Fight, America, great America <laughs> was also like making American made products. Like there was a really rich history of us, like making our own products and having like thriving textile industries and, mm-hmm. um, you know, making many of the tools that we used. And now we're in a society where we're, most of our objects are planned obsolescence objects. They are yep. made to fall apart so that we will consume more of them. Mm-hmm. And so we just, regardless of like, the weather and like climate and what the planet can handle. We know that our systems of just making all of these like plastic products, um, having bottles created for a 30 minute drink and then they end up in our oceans. We have visible, uh, you know, examples of Mm -hmm. like trash piling up in the Mm -hmm. ocean. And so we know that it's not sustainable, even if we don't have a wide imagination for, all the ways that it isn't sustainable. Right. And not to mention the, the exploitation of the workers abroad who create these products for us. Mm-hmm. When you mention, you know, the products used to be made in America. Yes, of course there was exploitation of workers mm-hmm. at that time in the U S but, and that should not be discounted. 
American manufacturing also built the American middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we saw as a level of prosperity for the average American in the you know, mid-1900s, uh, post-World War II, came from American manufacturing when things were built to last, mm-hmm. when product quality was, was something that was valued a little more highly. What's interesting now, we can look at case studies on this, is while the American middle class is dwindling mm-hmm. and becoming increasingly rare, uh, the Chinese middle class is growing mm-hmm. with the same for the same exact reason that our middle class grew in the mid-1900s, because they have all the manufacturing jobs now. Mm-hmm. So there's, in, in a way, there's this exploitation of workers, and there's these low wages abroad, and there's sweatshops, and there's things like that. But as as China's economy grows and becomes more, more free market, we're seeing that emerging middle class that we're... I would say trending away from here, even though we call ourselves free market and we call ourselves innovative and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I would, we, I would we argue also, that we're not we're not extending uh, those economic opportunities to our people in the same way. Totally, mm-hmm. and we also did have a like a rich history of uh, union organizing mm-hmm. within factories, mm-hmm. um, because when you're exploiting the people that live in your land and they see that you're directly in front of them profiting, while they are directly like you mm-hmm. know one physically being affected like coal miners in America being affected with black lung and, and terrible yeah. diseases. Um, uh, and seeing that they're, they're the means that they were living did not come close to the means that the people who owned the actual company, mm-hmm. um, were living in, they started to strike. They started to unionize. That was not our, our rich union history was not a left or right issue. It was a class issue yeah. of the working class and the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Um, and now if we take all that exploiting of labor and we push it into other countries, we don't have to always physically see the damage that it's doing in right. people's lives. And there's a detachment around our consumption and how something was made and who made it and mm-hmm. what a product is and, you know, what's yeah. the history uh, of it. A previous guest uh, who interviewed the other day um, kind of alluded to that same point, saying that for, for us to have heaven... And of course, I mean, the earthly heaven of like, oh, look at our nice iPhones and things like that. You know, for us to to live in in happiness, someone else has to be living in hell. Yeah. Based on the way this this the system is set up. And so, as you say, we have people, you know, 4000 miles away who are assembling these things that we use every day and that we take for granted the what they had to go through to create that. For and us. and that it was really the the United States, uh, you know, with with the the push for. Uh, consumerism through advertisement through TVs and mm-hmm. radios mm-hmm. and now social media like we have a sickness of consuming that you know needs to be addressed yeah. our, our feeling of like we need more and more and more to make this life sustainable I have mm-hmm. our bearable I have a shopping problem too like in COVID <laughs> I reached a point where I was like I want to get this special item and it'll make me feel better. And it's something that's in us that needs to be addressed. Is this why I'm sad all the time? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So we, we should address, because we've proposed a lot of, um, what I would call pro-life policies, things that support people economically, things that support people, uh, as far as education around sex and birth control and things like that. I would argue these are pro-life policies. I would I would like to see the church take a stronger stance on these things. That would make me feel even even more proud to be a Christian if, mm-hmm. if I saw the church standing up for some of these things that I consider to be morally right. Um, but we do often hear the argument of how do we pay for it? How do we pay for all these government handouts, if you will? Um, what, what do we say to that? And particularly, how do we connect that to Christian faith? 
Yeah. So I think we can, we could take a look at the national conversation around defunding police too. Mm -hmm. I think that this is like a really tangible example of like a budget is a moral document. We Mm -hmm. have money, we pay taxes and we deserve to get systems and things that are going to benefit us Mm -hmm. in return. Mm -hmm. And And we we, should say that defunding police is a awful slogan because it doesn't actually explain what what the proposal is, right? Which is divesting from money, from systems that, you know, when when a police officer is called, there was an issue that had arisen. That issue may have been a mental health crisis, Mm -hmm. which we know when people are highly likely to be um, endangered by the police if they are having a mental health crisis and the the police is not Mm -hmm. uh, the police are not adequately trained in understanding how to handle a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. The crime, the issues were already happening in our community, and the police did not prevent the crime from happening. Mm they responded to the crime. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at how can we prevent crime from happening and these, these desperate situations from happening in the first place. Yeah. And how can we expand, um, the options for what kind of specialist is needed in that, um, situation? Because there are specialists to deal with these things. And I read a great piece, um, some weeks ago written by a police officer, essentially saying like, we know we're not good at all these things, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it keeps being put on us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're told to respond to the mental health crisis. We're told to respond to the car wreck, to the burglary. We recognize that we're not great at these things, yeah. but we'll do it because you keep asking us to. You know, so I think it's almost like the sentiment to some degree on both sides, yeah. both the police and the public is there of maybe let's let's change the situation and let's have that conversation lovingly. You know, let's the idea of, of defunding police is, is also saying like, what, what is the value that police do provide? What is something that they are good at? Let's mm-hmm. have them focus on that and let's bring in other professionals, as you say, with the tax dollars that we already pay mm-hmm. to take care of some of these other social problems yeah. that we have. And I think this is also a bipartisan agreement mm-hmm. position of like people who are billionaires should be paying money back into the society. Yeah, they shouldn't, they shouldn't be not paying taxes, which yeah. an overwhelming number of, of large corporations and very wealthy people pay exactly zero dollars in taxes. So a lot of people are the average working class person when they hear like, Oh, how are we going to pay for this through our tax dollars? They have every right to be like, I mm-hmm. already pay enough taxes. Mm-hmm. We do pay enough taxes. Mm-hmm. Certain people, billionaire class, the ruling class is not paying their fair share Mm -hmm. and they used Mm -hmm. our labor, our labor power built that and we deserve to get, um, through their tax money, through the profit that they've created, we deserve to get systems that work for everyone who helped to create Mm -hmm. that wealth in Mm -hmm. the first place. Um, so that's how we pay for it is we tax billionaires, Mm -hmm. right? We make Mm -hmm. sure that the ruling class is held accountable, um, by their, the working class. Mm -hmm. And, we also look, take a look at the privatization systems that we have, the money that goes towards um, bailing out Wall Street and mm-hmm. bailing mm-hmm. out people instead, uh, bailing out companies instead of bailing out people. Yeah, um, and we can we can all know that we're sitting in the, the middle of a pandemic right now, in which, speaking for other countries, have have done the kind of monthly payments to people recognizing the economic concerns that they're facing in addition to what's normal right now. And, you know, you could argue that's eh, a handout, whatever it's entitlement. They're paying people to stay home right now and recognizing that people are going to suffer economically if they aren't taken care of during this time. The U S gave $1,200 a person three months ago. Um, and so it's like, 
at the, while at the same time continuing to put money into what I would argue is an extremely overfunded military. Mm-hmm. And as a Christian, I have a problem with us exercising our um, exercising our military power around the globe to the tune of almost a trillion dollars a year. To me, yeah. the pro-life argument would be let's let's have a military, of course, absolutely. Let's reallocate those funds that we are already paying. And to ends that, as you say, help average people. Totally. And I know that when I talk with a lot of um, people in my community who say that they want to go into the military, their primary reasoning is that they want to be able to, they want to get the benefits of going into the military sure. because they want to come back and go to college, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they also want a job with dignity. And so we're not saying when we say that we need to transition away from oil and fuel or we need to transition away from investing in military equipment to go into other countries um, and to, to meddle with their you know economy and their their governmental structures mm-hmm. we have some major problems that need to be solved at home yeah the enemy where we've been so concerned about the enemies around us the enemy right now is a virus mm-hmm. and we're not adequate like all of this military equipment that we have is not actually like mm-hmm. able to help us with uh, the thing that's actually killing so many Americans yeah. Yeah. so I think that, you know, if, if people who could reimagine a society where the military is the largest jobs program we have, I believe, right? Government funded jobs program. If we could, if those people who want a job with dignity and respect, they want to be a hero. They want to take part in a hero story. They want, they care about their country. They're patriotic. Mm -hmm. They want to serve Americans. They want to serve America. Mm -hmm. What if we had like, uh, you know, a plethora of, of, public jobs programs where they could um, be reconstructing our infrastructure, where they Mm -hmm. could be, um, you know, getting trained to do welding and and plumbing work Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. be trained to, um, you know, develop more national parks and services and um, actually go out and serve with food programs and become like, what if we had a larger, more expansive social uh, work program, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's just a reimagination that needs to happen that you you could be... The money is there, and Money's we spend there. it in a certain way. But we have a lot of issues that we need to 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 invest in solving here at home that mm-hmm. are not just trying to protect oil um, and mm-hmm. in other countries and to cling to this 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 rugged capitalism that actually is not sustainable and it's not building a middle class. It's just mm-hmm. furthering the the wealth gap and mm-hmm. income gap. And, and you and I have had many conversations off the record about you know capitalism and how it works and how we feel about that. I would. I would say personally, and maybe you'll agree, disagree. I'm not anti-capitalism. I benefit from I benefit from having the products that I have. You've talked about wanting to start a business yourself. Your husband has owned a business in the past, and so we're not we're not saying like let's let's let the government handle everything and totally abolish this. It's we're saying let's provide a safety net. Yeah, let's provide a safety net that is that is publicly funded, publicly meaning by you and me. We pay the taxes already, um, and I, I would argue that opens us up to pursue the other economic innovations and creativity that we would want to pursue without the stress and the uh, the pain of what comes from the ways that our society does not care for its people. Totally, and I think you know. So I had a friend. Uh, <laughs> I think that there's a big movement for a lot of Christians that I know to identify as libertarian now Uh, and to say like, okay, I don't, I agree that like this, that Trump's politics and the racism that I'm seeing spewing out of his mouth are not something I can align to with. Mm -hmm. 
and then they're afraid. I think also mostly the abort, the like pro life abortion yeah. issue is is one that keeps them from being able to make a transition to um, or even being a, like fiscally conservative, which is totally valid. Saying sure. I wish that we had actual budgets where yeah. they were ever even remotely balanced instead of a totally abstracted. Well, who's the? I don't know who said the joke. I wish I could attribute to the correct person, <laughs> but um, it was like, do you like wasting money? Yes or no. No. No, of course not. You're a fiscal <laughs> conservative. Cool. We all are. Like right. everyone everyone is. Right. So yeah. we, we agree that we want actual budgets and, mm-hmm. you know, different systems to, to actually work. Um, but I would argue that a libertarian perspective of like, I don't want the government involved in my life and sure. I want things to happen. Like we can look out for each other locally. I agree with that. Like, I do think that, like, we can take care of our communities and each other. Mm-hmm, I recognize mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. the United States is so massive and, like, that we're, you know, that it one type of system won't work for every community, that communities right. really need to step up and meet communal needs. Um, but I would argue that, you know, people say that socialism or democratic socialism is pie in the sky. Sure. But in our lifetime, we are not going to get rid of um, social programming. Like we're not going to get rid of paying taxes to a, yeah. our federal government. We're not going to get rid of the structure where the federal government allocates those funds into right. different systems. Yeah. There's a, the lever of, of that, of government, I think is something that is, could be a good thing. It's not yes. always a good thing because of the way that our, you know, our unique American context is, but having such a large scalability, I think is, it could be good. Right. So <laughs> I agree. You know, I think that libertarianism is actually more pie in the sky as far as like the way that you're going to like really plant yourself if someone wants to plant themselves into an ideology. Sure. And what makes the most sense if you if we want to have local communities taking care of each other and we want some kind of different structure, I think it needs to be a people's run government or us as a people demanding that the the big systems that we do have need to be ones that like keep us safe and protected Mm -hmm. and healthy. Um, and we need to, we need to reorganize how we're spending our money and reorganize our systems, get rid of a lot of middlemen, get rid of like the fact that these profitable, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. profit off of medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So just redistributing and reimagining a structure. Um, but I think we do have some shared goals, um, collectively of, we don't want total government, you know, governmental reign in our lives. And we do want to spend money in financially wise ways. Yeah. We just want to spend it. I I don't like paying taxes right now because I don't really see the benefit of it. Yeah. Or or you don't think that mm -hmm. investing solely in um, military funding or bailing out large corporations is the best use of your money or you'd like to see it just be distributed in a different Mm -hmm. way. And as as we come to a close, just to... Reminder that some of the things that you and I have talked about, and this is a reminder for those listening, is you know people people hear socialist and left as like trigger words sometimes. Um, what, what we are asking for and proposing and, and discussing right now is what the rest of the developed world does. This is not new. Um, you can look at England, you can look at Germany, and other parts of Europe. Um, yes, people like to bring up arguments of places where socialism has failed. Uh, I would argue any system can can trend toward authoritarianism and dictatorship. Like that's not unique to socialism or communism or capitalism. It's, and many, it can of, many no of the failed, what. many of the failed uh, socialist experiments were not allowed to uh, rise and fall on their own accord without yeah. U S intervention. 
yes. playing a role in their whole choice. different conversation. It's a whole other day, absolutely. but yeah, no, absolutely. and I'm absolutely <laughs> we we could totally right. But, that, but the the argument of like freedom, um, and I, I believe it's the United Nations uh, Freedom Index or something like that. I'll have to find it. But the U.S. has slipped in the freedom rankings almost every year for the last few years, and they measure this not on what you know what the rhetorical word freedom means, like I want my freedom. You know, I don't want to wear a mask, whatever it happens to be. Freedom is in how how economically secure are the people? Um, what is their you know what is their free speech? Um, are they able to pursue the things and the goals that they want to pursue? And the countries that are rising in the freedom rankings as we are falling are the countries that have stronger social safety nets, where the tax dollars that the people pay are benefiting them in the form of better education, um, better health care, uh, and in many cases. They don't pay that much more in taxes than we do. Some places do. Some some nations pay as much as forty percent in taxes, um, but many pay the same or less, but get a bigger, a better return on their investment, yeah. if you will, um, if they because can they're afford, seeing the return of what they have put in. Totally. And if they can afford their rent and they can afford access mm-hmm. to healthy food and they have it built in that they get time off, they don't have to work two jobs to support. Mm-hmm. And no, we didn't even talk economy. about family leave. But that's a whole oh, other dang. thing that everyone should agree on that is also bipartisan. Yeah. Ivanka Trump and Bill Cassidy, I believe, worked together. I could be getting those names entirely wrong. I know it was Bill Cassidy. I'm pretty sure Ivanka Trump has spoken on it. And it's also a very popular topic on the left of paid family leave that's, uh, you know, to some degree provided by your employer and to some degree provided by, by the government. Mm-hmm. But letting people have time off when they have a kid. Yeah, I mean like, that is the future. For? So you can so you can have that family values pro life policy of caring for your family. Uh, we are the once again the only developed nation that does not guarantee this. Yeah, and even like capitalists fall like understand that that could be valuable because that's the future workforce of America. Yeah. don't and so, we want them to be smart and able to do things? Of course we do. Depends on the level in which you plan to exploit them. Sure, 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 sure. sure, sure. <laughs> Treat them as human or not. <laughs> and I think that's the question: is that to be pro life is to fight for, you know, a healthy human experience. And I really, I know so many great Christians while I'm not still involved in the church. Mm-hmm. I know so many great Christians that, um, that are struggling right now to, to understand how to transition yeah. into like only, only seeing this as like a far left or far right uh, political options instead of seeing so like that there's that. so much social yeah. work and organizing to be done. And to kind of, I encourage them to try to like open up and reframe and try to understand this wider conversation of pro-life. What does it mean for us to yeah. advocate for life? Yeah. And that's, that's the homework I'm going to give everyone. And, and for, for us as well, I mean, we're not speaking as experts on these topics other than I would say like as an economics and history teacher, like to a degree we can speak on these things. Um, but as far as like how we see the church and how we see the pro-life argument, this is just influenced by our stories um, and how and how Corey and I see the world. Um, so our challenge, I guess, is, as, as she just said, interrogate what it means for you to say that you are pro-life or pro-choice or left or right or Christian or not Christian. What does that mean to you? Um, I would love to hear your ideas. Send me a message. Uh, we'd love to talk more about this. And if you have a perspective to share, we'd love to let you share it. Yeah. I any, think, any homework for you or any, any uh, readings that you suggest? Um, I, I think mostly just, you know, if you're for the Christian audience out there, like really look at, look at the life of Jesus and see, um, what his stories were really, you know, pointing out and teaching and calling for mm-hmm. people to, to do, you know, caring about the greater good and not 
putting greed of money and profit of a few above yeah. the the health and benefit. It would of seem the there, there are things that he clearly cared for and didn't care for yeah. in that regard. Um, no, I, I think that there's just a really big conversation that is is brewing in the church, and I think that the church sees. Um, that there are a lot of people who are aligning themselves with Christianity, mm-hmm. but who are using Christianity to justify deep um, racism and hatred of the other. And I think we really need to look at maybe look at the story of the Jesus who was a person of color who was killed by the state for being right. <laughs> spreading radical messages of love. Whoops. That yeah, like let's let's yeah. you know taking a look at that person and then really asking how is your church community operating right now? Is it mm-hmm. mostly serving as a, a social group for the people that attend the space? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it is, that's great and it's been great for a while. But is there is there a better use of the time and finances of the church, the labor power of the people in the church, mm-hmm. to? serve their community in physical ways and in a better way or can they start to go in and advocate um for for people's like direct needs um to actually live talking with Corey refreshed me on what a lot of people my age who grew up in the church are experiencing now we want to see the people of god living like jesus I hope you will see this story and exchange of ideas as a chance to interrogate the role of the Christian church in building a world worth living in. For more, visit leftandwhite.com and follow at leftwhitepodcast on Instagram. Thank you for listening. Until next time, be good. Be good.